Hello, and welcome to Right Now with Ralph Martin, a podcast where author, speaker, and worldwide renewal leader, Dr. Ralph Martin, shares what the Holy Spirit is stirring up in the church right now. Words of encouragement from the Lord to strengthen you for such a time as this. We are glad you can be with us this week as we seek to encourage you for this moment in history. And now, your host, Ralph Martin. Hey, welcome to our fourth and final week of our Lenten mission. As you know, we're working through different parts of this book called The Fulfillment of All Desire. And it's a a book I've written with the best wisdom the Catholic Church has about how to grow in the spiritual life. So I'm going to answer some of the questions that came in from last week before we begin this week's session. One question that came in is, hell filled with fire. Well, I don't know. I hope never to find out personally, but that is an image that's often used to describe hell. Jesus uses it to describe hell. Uh, When Mary uh, gave a vision of hell to the uh, children of Fatima, they saw fire. Uh, Lots of people have seen fire when they've seen hell. And uh, whether it's literal fire as we know it on earth or not, it's probably probably something different, spiritual fire. Maybe it's an image. Of, maybe it's a, a way of describing the, uh, the, the agony of, of being separated from God by our own choice, the agony of having fellowship with the demons, as Catherine of Siena said in week number one of our Lenten mission. Uh, so we don't know. We don't want to find out. Basically, uh, it's an image that's used by very authoritative people, including Jesus, to talk about what hell is like. So we just we just don't want to be there. Another question, how do we resist the media? Well, don't watch the media, <laughs> you know, if it's really affecting you badly. Limit your access to the media. Uh, use it in moderation. Be wise about what you listen to because what we take into our mind and heart affects us, and we shouldn't be giving very much room at all in our mind and heart to what the world is wanting us to be concerned about. So uh, there's no magic rule. There's no formula. But ask the Lord to give you wisdom and discernment about what's helpful and what isn't helpful in terms of your access to media. Uh Yes, the Holy Spirit will make you sensitive to it. When you watch too much media or the wrong kind of media, you'll know there'll be a certain deadness in your spirit. You need to learn from that. You need to make some decisions from that and not drift into a a kind of mindless entertainment or passivity. Or It's going to kill the, the hunger for God in us if we do that. So we really need to be alert to the impact and effect that media is having on us and Limit it accordingly and choose it accordingly. Another question. What does it mean to reorder my attachment to my spouse to Christ? Well, that isn't really how I would put it. We, we don't, we're not reordering our attachment to our spouse to Christ, but we're trying to integrate our attachment to our spouse in the Lord. So it isn't like a possessive, clinging, looking to our spouse or something that only God himself can give us. The Lord loves holy marriage. I mean, he, he loves marriage. He loves all the good things of the world. When we were talking last week about needing to be detached, we need to be detached from an inordinate or unbalanced 
uh, desire for these things or looking to these things for something that only the Lord can give us. We need to accept our spouse as a gift. We need to expect uh, accept our finances as a gift. We need to accept the food we have as a gift and not cling to it possessively, but receive it from the hand of the Lord. As St. Paul says, uh, what do you have that you haven't received? So living in gratitude, holding the things of the world loosely, not clinging to people as a source of uh, ultimate happiness that only can come from God, but husband and wife looking to the Lord together, following the Lord together, loving and serving one another in the Holy Spirit. Okay, how do we grow in discernment? Um, well, I, pretty much the things I've said here, you know, relate to it, but we need to pray. You know, we, we need to have a daily prayer time. That, that shouldn't be the only time that we pray, but as the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, if we don't pray sometimes, we'll never be able to pray always, like Paul encourages us to pray always. So we really need to have a prayer time. We need to really be very reverently and very attentively loving the Word of God, reading the Scripture, meditating on the readings that, that come up in Mass every day if we can't go to Mass, uh, doing getting into a Bible study. That's a good Bible study, and there's lots of them. We talked about some of the good ones uh, in, in a previous session. So loving the Word of God, praying, uh, being being united to Jesus in the Holy Sacrament and the Holy Eucharist, all those things increase our discernment. Testing our ideas with other people who are more mature and more more advanced in the spiritual life. Uh, so all those things kind of help us grow in discernment. Jesus says, my own know my voice, and I know my own. So we need to learn how to recognize the voice of the Lord from prayer and from Scripture. From spiritual reading, too. Do the doctors of the church say anything about discerning the most helpful private devotions for oneself? I would say the general principles of discernment kind of apply there. If there's a particular devotion that's helping us grow in love of God and love of neighbor, that would be a good reason for, you know, getting into it or accepting it or making it part of our prayer. One of the things that John of the Cross warns us against is not to get attached to particular devotions in a way that actually block a process of growth. Uh, I was just talking to a priest recently, and uh, it was in a spiritual direction context. And he said, Ralph, you know, if sometime when you're praying the rosary, you know, you become aware of the presence of the Lord and you just feel like you should be there resting in the presence of the Lord. Don't feel like you have to finish the rosary. Now, that's hard for me because I have made a commitment to say the rosary every day. And I've been able to do that for, for many years now. I'm really grateful for that. I know Mary's requested it, but I think this priest was right. You know, if the Lord shows up, you know, in one of our devotions, don't feel like you have to finish it. Don't feel like you have to get it in, but kind of uh, give the benefit of the doubt to the Lord's presence, the Lord's desire perhaps to have a quiet time of union with us. Well, we can talk more about that some other time. Uh Several people have mentioned about why their favorite saint wasn't included in the book. You know, somebody asked, you know, you know, John of the Cross is so strict, you know, if you included a Franciscan, wouldn't that be better balance? Well, let me tell you what the organizing principle of the book was. I figured, look, life is short. Where is the best wisdom the Catholic Church has about growing in union with the Lord? And I knew I needed to look at 
those 35 or so doctors of the church uh, and, and, and see which ones really focus on the spiritual journey. So that's the principle of selection from the doctors of the church, which ones are the ones that focus best on the growth in the spiritual life. And that's why I picked the ones I did. Now, St. Ignatius is a, a tremendous saint, and so many people are helped through the spiritual exercises, including myself, but he's not a doctor of the church. He doesn't really uh, provide you know, a comprehensive view of the spiritual journey in the way that these doctors of the church do. St. Francis, uh, St. Francis is maybe the greatest saint that ever lived. You know, a lot of people think that, uh, but he's not a doctor of the church. He basically said, live the gospel. Now, uh, St. Bonaventure, who uh, ended up being head of the Franciscan order not too long after Francis's death, is a doctor of the church. But I've taken a look at St. Bonaventure's writings. In fact, I've read quite a bit of them. And I find them a little bit more abstract or theoretical than the doctors of the church that I picked. I didn't find him as pastorally or practically useful as the doctors of the church that I actually picked. But no offense to St. Bonaventure, no offense to St. Francis. Now, the question about St. Francis was saying, you know, maybe it would be a little bit more gentle or a little bit uh, more positive or something than some of these doctors of the church like John of the Cross. Well, let me read to you what St. Francis de Sales, who was named after St. Francis of Assisi, actually says about what St. Francis went through. The glory, this is on page 366, the glorious father of whom we speak was himself once assailed and disturbed by such deep spiritual melancholy that he could not help showing it in his conduct. If he wanted to talk with his religious, he could not do so. If, we, if he withdrew from their company, it was worse. John of the Cross says something almost identical. He says, when you're going through a dark night of purification, being with other people is doesn't work. It just doesn't satisfy. But being alone doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. So you're, it's like you're suspended in the air. And this is exactly how Francis de Sales is describing the purification that St. Francis went through. Abstinence and bodily mortification weighed him down, and prayer gave him no relief. He went on in this way for two years so that he seemed completely abandoned by God. Finally, after he had humbly endured this violent storm, lasted two years, the Savior in a single instant restored him to a happy calm. That's almost an identical description as what John on the Cross describes in the process of going through a dark night. Now, I also want to tell you that my friend Peter Herbeck is a little kind of concerned that so many people have sentimentalized St. Francis and don't really know the real St. Francis. It's a little bit like with Jesus. A lot of people have sentimentalized the real Jesus and don't really know the real Jesus, which is why we need to pay attention to his word. So my friend Peter has written a booklet called St. Francis Used Words, and you should see some of the words he used. He is not softer than John of the Cross. He is not softer than any of these doctrines of the church. He is a gospel saint, and all these saints are gospel saints, and the gospel is challenging. It asks a lot, but it offers a lot. So at the end of the program, I'll tell you how 
you can get this week, this booklet for free. Okay, so let's start on this week's session. What we're going to do is chapter 14, Deeper Purification. We, we can't even do all of chapter 14. And now some people have told me, gee, I hope we can continue with the fulfillment of all desire because there's so much more that you're not getting to. And probably we'll be able to do that. But actually, we're going to do a new kind of mission as our next one, which I'll tell you about. But maybe next Advent, we'll dip into the fulfillment of all desire again, because there is so much more that we didn't get to. So before we talk about the deeper purification, let's just review the stages of spiritual growth. There's the purgative way, where we go through the initial purification, where we uh, deal with, you know, maybe gross sin in our life or uh, gross carelessness or worldliness or uh, just not living a very spiritual life and kind of basically going through some kind of conversion. But we've talked about different kinds of conversions different saints have had, like St. Augustine, we talked last week about the the agony he went through in breaking from a pattern of very serious uh, sexual sin and how long it took and uh, the, the, the amazing way the Lord eventually freed him. And I don't think we've talked about uh, St. Teresa of Avila, but St. Teresa of Avila went through a different kind of conversion. You know, she entered the convent about 20, 21 years old. She said her motivation was she wanted to save her soul. She thought that was the safest way of saving her soul. She was very popular. She was very vivacious. I think she felt some danger about what could happen to her if she didn't have the structure of religious life. But then she says that after the first year or two, where she began to really experience real graces of deeper prayer, she began to fall into a lukewarmness. And, and she's pretty hard on herself. And, you know, well, the convent she entered, the convent of the incarnation right there in Avila, was a very lax convent. Uh, uh, the wealthy nuns would have servants with them and pets with them, and they had multi-room suites and things like that. The poorer nuns didn't have that. It was... People were coming and going. The cloister wasn't really kept very well. Uh, people would go out and visit people. Visitors would come in. And, and Teresa says she she got involved in that. And she ended up kind of really enjoying visiting with people in the parlor, uh, encouraging them to pray. But she herself was really drifting away from prayer. And then just short of her 40th birthday, she's walking down a corridor in, in the convent. And it's a little bust of the head and shoulders of, of Jesus in his agony with the thorn, crown of thorns, with the flagellation of the, the scourging at the pillar, uh, with the blood. And, and all of a sudden, the God, God gave her the grace to say, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? Look at what Jesus has done for me. What am I doing for him? And she had like a, an, a second conversion. She had an adult conversion to being fervent in the spiritual life. So... There's different kinds of conversions, but we all need to be converted. We all need to continue to be converted. We all need to continue to grow in the spiritual life. So after the purgative stage, there's also the illuminative stage. The illuminative stage is where the gross things in our life have been taken care of, where we've reached a certain stability in, in living a Catholic life. We're praying. We're going to Mass. Uh, we're trying to love the people in our life. We're trying to do good deeds. We're trying to be generous with our finances. Uh, just living a, a good Catholic life. 
And then Teresa says, there's no reason why somebody gets to a certain stability in their life can't go all the way to the unitive way, which is the third and final stage. But she says the reason why people don't often make progress in the spiritual life is because they have a lack of desire or a lack of knowledge. And she says, look, if you don't have a very great desire to to be one with the Lord, you're not going to make much progress. She says, unless you have a very great determination, you're not going to make much progress. But then she says, if you don't have a great desire for God, if you don't have a great determination to grow in the spiritual life, ask God to give him, give it to you, and he will. So this is really encouraging. So wherever you are in the spiritual journey, uh, whatever obstacles you're running into, whatever weakness you've kind of encountered in yourself, whatever failure you've encountered in yourself, ask God to give you what you need to keep moving, to keep going forward, and he will. In the epistle of James, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God for it, and he'll give it to you. Sometimes we forget that uh, that when we run into our own poverty, that actually qualifies us for divine welfare. We forget to ask, saying, Lord, I can't do this by myself. I need your grace. I need your help. I need your mercy. You will receive it. Ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. There's a, a, a phrase in the prophet Jeremiah which says, the Lord told him, when you seek me with all your heart, then I will let myself be found by you. So we need to continue the spiritual journey. The illuminative way is it can go on for many, many years where we're growing in union with the Lord. Then the unitive is where we've gone through the purifications we need to go through, and we've kind of come into a very profound union with the Lord, even on this earth, even in this life, which has tremendously good results. And that's the next chapter, after chapter 15, the fruits of union. And we're going to just give a slight little hint of that tonight, but maybe maybe an Advent or some other time we'll get more into the, the tremendously good fruit that comes from picking up our cross every day and following Jesus. Okay. At a certain point, though, in the illuminative way, which most people live in for a good while, and most people get into that stage, uh, the soul knows, though, perhaps in an intuitive way, that deeper levels of purification are needed and that not everything that needs to be dealt with has been. So let's Take a look at how John of the Cross describes this kind of an intuition that even though there's a stability in our life, even though things are going reasonably well, even though we're a lot better than we used to be, there's still some stuff there that hasn't quite been gotten at to. So this is on page 349. And John says, the real purgation of the senses begins with the spirit. Hence, the night of the senses, as previously explained, should be called a certain reformation and bridling of the appetite rather than a purgation. So John describes the stages of spiritual life. He talks about the active and passive night of the senses, where our appetites, our passions are coming under control. Then he talks about the active and passive nights of the spirit or of the soul where God himself is going into a deeper level 
and this is he says the reason is that all the imperfections and disorders of the sensory part are rooted in the spirit and from it receive their strength. All good and evil habits reside in the spirit. And until these habits are purged, the senses cannot be completely purified of their rebellions and vices. This is, this is what I wrote here. Nevertheless, the soul may go on for years in this relatively stable, peaceful state, enjoying a measure of contemplative prayer, a measure of stable virtue and engagement in service, experiencing intervals of purification, but nothing sustained and enduring. Those who are in this illuminative way or intermediate stage are called by John proficients. The soul knows, though, perhaps in an intuitive way, that deeper levels of purification are needed and that not everything that needs to be dealt with has been. So let's see how he says it in his own words. If his majesty intends to lead the soul on, he does not, he does not put it in this dark night of spirit immediately after it's going out from the aridities and trials of the first purgation and night of sense. Instead, after having emerged from the state of beginners, the soul usually spends many years exercising itself in the state of proficience. In this new state, as one liberated from a cramped prison cell, it goes about the things of God with much more freedom and satisfaction of spirit and with more abundant interior delight than it did in the beginning before entering the night of sense. You know, one of the things the devil does, and this is really terrible, when you're starting the spiritual journey, he makes the spiritual journey look so tough and so forbidding and so unattractive that you'll think you'll never be happy if you're really engaged in it. And it's just a complete diabolical lie. Yes, there's some pain in the initial purification. Yes, there's some pain in giving up serious sin. Yes, there's some pain about getting accustomed to prayer. Yes, there's some pain. In, in denying ourselves and learning how to love more other people. But once you get through it to a certain point, it's just so much better than being a slave to our disordered desires. So John talks about uh, things are better. It's imagination and faculties are no longer bound to discursive meditation and spiritual solicitude as was their custom. We're, we're more sensitive to the presence of the Lord. We're more able to just be in his presence without saying uh, memorized prayers, although Teresa of Avila says that some nuns in her convent who have reached the highest stage of spiritual union just by devoutly reciting the Lord's Prayer. So God can work in any way, uh, but just devoutly saying the Lord's Prayer uh, can enable the Lord to bring you into a state of deep union. Nevertheless, the purification or purgation of the soul is not complete. The purgation of the principal part that of the spirit is lacking. As a result, certain needs, aridities, that's got really dryness and feeling not connected with the Lord, darknesses and conflicts are felt. These are sometimes far more intense than those of the past and are like omens or messengers of the coming night of the spirit. But they are not lasting as they will be in the night that is to come. I remember one time St. Therese uh, said she went through a horrible dark night that lasted three days. Well, <laughs> believe me, that's not horrible. 
but they're not lasting as they will be in the night that is to come. For after enduring a short period or periods of time, or even days in this night and tempest, the soul immediately returns to its customary serenity. Now here, John gives a couple images that helps us understand what he's talking about. The the habitual imperfections are the imperfect affections and habits still remaining like roots in the spirit. For the sensory purgation could not reach the spirit. The difference between the two purgations is like the difference between pulling up roots or cutting off a branch or rubbing out a fresh stain or an old, deeply embedded one. So basically saying is that the initial purification of the purgative way is like cutting off the weeds in the garden at the level of the soil. The garden looks pretty good, but the roots are still there, and the roots are going to cause problems. Where he, taught, he, did, he describes the uh, purification a little bit like, you know, when something just kind of falls on your garment and stains it, getting it out right away is, is easier. But if it's an old stain, it's, it takes a lot more elbow grease to get the stain out. So he's saying that, that that's where we are at a certain point in the illuminative way. The Lord thinks we're ready to start getting at some of the roots, which are obstacles to the fullest union possible here on earth. He also gives us a hint of some of the good results that are going to come from it. These proficients or intermediates also have the natural dullness everyone contracts through sin and a distracted and inattentive spirit. The spirit must be illumined, clarified, and recollected by means of the hardships and conflicts of this night in order to experience the perfect state of the union of love. He also talks that sometimes in the illuminative way, people come a little careless and a little arrogant uh, in their relationship with the Lord. And there's a deeper purification needed to instill the profound sense of reverence and awe of God that uh, is appropriate. You know, Teresa of Avila sometimes refers to Jesus as her spouse, but sometimes she refers to him as her, his majesty. So we need to never lose that reverence for the transcendent holiness for, of God and what it means that he's God and we're not. Catherine of Siena, when she would begin to pray, she'd say, Lord, you are the one who is, and I am the one who is not. So it's easy for pride to come in. It's usually, it's, it's easy for inappropriate familiarity to come in that doesn't sufficiently take into account the, the profound holiness of God and the difference between the creator and the creature. John says, sometimes we become audacious with God and lose holy fear, falling into vanity, presumption, and pride. And then we need to remember that everything that these saints are talking about is really in the scripture. They have their own technical language. They have their own personalities. They have their own ways of describing it. But Take a look at Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There's no entering the kingdom of God without many tribulations. Life on this earth is going to have problems. If we approach them in the right way, if we approach the sufferings in the right way, they can be a tremendous instrument of purification and great good can come out of it for us and for others. And then here's uh, John's description of the trials that happen in this dark night, this purification, this deeper purification. 
uh, page 351. The trials that those who are to reach this state transforming union suffer are threefold. Trials, discomforts, fears, and temptations from the world. And these in many ways, temptations, aridities, and afflictions in the senses. And tribulations, darknesses, distress, abandonment, temptations, and other trials in the spirit. Now, admittedly, when you get to chapter 14, when you start talking about the deeper purifications that are needed, it's tempting to say, well, you know, I, I think I've gone far enough. I, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm okay with where I am, and I'm not sure I'm up for deeper purifications. But we really need to remember a very important truth. These purifications are not optional. There's no way we can be one with God unless we're profoundly purified so that the only thing that's left in our will is union with his will, love for him and love for our neighbor, and that all the deep imperfections and selfishness and uh, deeply rooted habits that are obstacles to love need to be removed. So this purification is not an option. That's why way back in, in the first session we talked about that the text from Hebrews chapter 12, strive for that holiness without which nobody will see the Lord. It's, it's absolutely essential, essential. Now there's another truth we need to recognize. The sooner this purification happens, the better. Waiting for purgatory would be a sadness because the deeper the purification goes, the deeper the freedom that, that comes out from the other side, the deeper the love, the deeper the joy, the deeper the fruitfulness. Never again, we looked at John chapter 15. This is all biblical. That the branches that are connected to the vine, and the vine is Jesus, the, those, those branches that bear fruit are going to be pruned by God the Father so they bear more fruit. Now, pruning is painful, isn't it? I mean, you know, you know, cutting branches, you know, like trimming branches is, is, is painful. But Jesus says, unless you're willing to be pruned and, and bear more fruit, uh, there's a danger of drying up and, and withering and being disconnected from the vine and being thrown into the fire. There's that image of fire again from the first question we had tonight. Now, here's what he sort of describes it. He says, since unpurified souls must undergo the sufferings of fire in the next life to attain union with God and glory, so in this life they must undergo the fire of these sufferings to reach the union of perfection. This fire acts on some more vigorously than on others, and on some for a longer time than on others, according to the degree of union to which God wishes to raise them and according to what they must be purified of. This is customized love. This is personal love. This is God the Father knowing perfectly well who we are and loving us, knowing completely what our imperfections are and loving us so much so that he wants to really remove these things that separate us from him and separate us from the love that he wants us to have for others. So it's customized. It's, it's interval training. He puts us into a dark night long enough to do some good, and then he takes us out again. Sometimes he keeps us in longer, sometimes shorter. Sometimes for people that he feels like can handle it, he'll put them in for the two years that St. Francis was in, or maybe even longer some of the saints have been in. But don't be afraid. God knows exactly what we can handle and exactly what's for our best. 
John of the Cross, besides using the image of the weeds in the garden above the soil and the roots below the soil that have to be gotten at, he uses an image of a burning log, which gives us a good feel about what's happening. This is on page 352. For the sake of further clarity in this matter, we ought to note that this purgative and loving knowledge or divine light we are speaking of has the same effect on a soul that fire has on a log of wood. The soul is purged and prepared for union with the divine light, just as the wood is prepared for transformation into the fire. Fire, when applied to wood, first dehumidifies it, dispelling all moisture and making it give off any water it contains. Then it gradually turns the wood black, makes it dark and ugly, and even causes it to emit a bad odor by drying out the wood. The fire brings to light and expels all those ugly and dark accidents that are contrary to fire. Finally, by heating and enkindling it from without, the fire transforms the wood into itself and makes it as beautiful as it is itself. Then he says, this is what the fire of God's love does in our soul. It brings to the surface the impurities, the imperfections, and eventually it unites us so closely to himself that we begin to burn with the same love with which God burns. So the image of fire in scripture is really interesting. You know, uh, at the very last uh, verse in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it says, our God is a consuming fire. It, it's the fire of love. It's the fire of purity. It's the fire of holiness that when it comes into contact with his creatures, transforms them into holiness. But when the creature rejects the fire of God's love, it experiences the fire of his judgment and the fire of hell. So this is all about being with the Lord forever. This is all about yielding to the fire of love, which also has a profoundly purifying dimension. Okay, um, let's talk about some of the things that are rooted in our spirit that need to be dealt with. You know, we know that, you know, we talk about the capital sins. We're going to go to page 338 now. You know, pride, covetousness, lust, anger, envy, you know, all these kinds of things. And uh, we think about them in their kind of maybe gross forms, you know. But there's there's roots in our spirit uh, that are even deeper than the gross manifestations of these capital sins. For example, pride. Pride has a just evil way of creeping into almost anything we could be doing. And the Lord really needs to get at the root of pride. And a lot of times the only way to get at the root of pride is, is by humiliation. Now, I've said this previously, just because we humiliate, it doesn't mean that we become humble. We have to accept the humiliation and let it bear fruit in our soul. So here's what John says about some of the ways in which pride can hide itself, even as we pursue the spiritual life. Sometimes people growing in the Lord minimize their faults, and at other times they become discouraged by them since they felt they were already saints, and they become impatient and angry with themselves, which is yet another fault. They're often extremely anxious that God remove their faults and imperfections, but their motive is personal peace rather than God. They fail to realize that were God to remove their faults, they might very well become more proud and presumptuous. 
John also points out that this hidden pride can also manifest itself by trying to impress our confessor, even going to a different confessor to confess our serious sins, vying to outdo our spiritual rivals, speaking of spiritual things so as to be praised, or by condemning others in our heart who don't appear to have the same devotion as us. So um, it can just creep into things. Bernard de Clairvaux says, if my fasting reflects my own self-will, it will not be acceptable to him. He'll find no fragrance in my fasting since its odor is not that of the lily of obedience, but the weed of self-will. The same thing I feel must be true not only of fasting, but of silence, vigils, prayer, spiritual reading, manual labor, and indeed of every detail of the monk's life when self-will is found in it instead of obedience. Self-will is a great evil, and through it your good deeds become not good for you. Now, it's easy when you hear the precision with which these doctors of the church diagnose our spiritual ills to say, oh my goodness, what hope is there for me? Oh, there's tremendous hope for us. If we don't diagnose the illness, it's very hard to get the cure. Uh, avarice, greed, covetousness. When we think of avarice or greed, we think of desiring to have things that don't belong to us or having more of what we already have to a disordered degree. Sad to say, it's entirely possible for us human beings to focus our greed and covetousness on spiritual things as well. John piercingly points out that many never have enough of pursuing spiritual input through hearing talks, seeking advice, or reading books, and becoming irritable and discontent if they don't find the consolation in these things that they're seeking. Attempting to possess or amass spiritual things, John points out, is ironically just the opposite of that poverty of spirit that is necessary to enter the kingdom. True worship in spirit and truth is sometimes short-circuited by a religiosity that is truly blind to the meaning of the spiritual journey, that self-emptying obedience and love to God and neighbor. Furthermore, John says, they weigh themselves down with over-decorated images and rosaries. They prefer one cross to another because of its elaborateness, decked out in relics and lists of saints' names. This attachment, possessiveness of heart, is contrary to poverty of spirit, which is intent only on the substance of the devotion, benefits by no more than what procures this sufficiently and tires of all other multiplicity and elaborate ornamentation. Since true devotion comes from the heart and looks only to the truth and substance represented by spiritual objects, and since everything else is imperfect attachment and possessiveness, any appetite for these things must be uprooted if some degree of perfection is to be reached. So um, I'm not going to go on. It, it goes on for page after page. It talks about anger. It talks about spiritual gluttony, wanting to have experiences and, and, and seeking experiences rather than the Lord himself. Uh, envy being envious of others who are more advanced in the spiritual life than us, and all these things that are deeply rooted in our spirit. So what happens? The Lord brings us into purifying dark nights. What is a dark night? It's usually always characterized by some significant degree of dryness, emptiness, aridity, you know, talking about an arid desert with no water, Sometimes we feel like we've been cut off from relationship with God. We don't feel him. We don't sense him. 
Sometimes we experience a recurrence of temptations, temptations against faith, of sensual temptations. We feel plagued. We feel attacked. One time, Catherine Siena, who was in a very high state of union with God, was very surprised by uh, sensual temptations and was just fighting them off and fighting them off and fighting them off. And finally, she was delivered from them, but she, she complained. And she said, Lord, why did this happen? Where were you? And the Lord said, Catherine, I was with you in the midst of them, but you needed to fight. I was protecting you, but you needed to fight. So the Lord is with us in these dark nights, even though we may not sense him, we may not experience him. We may even be tempted to think that he's abandoned us. Now, Catherine of Siena has a good description of the dark night, and I hope I can find it here. Yes, page 363 is 364. So here's Catherine's description of dark night. She doesn't use the terminology of John of the Cross. She doesn't call them dark nights. She just describes how awful they feel. Why do I, and, and this is God the Father explaining to Catherine why the Lord brings people through these dark nights. Why do I keep this soul surrounded by so many enemies in such pain and distress? The dark night, even though it's always characterized by this, this deep sense of dryness and aridity, also sometimes is accompanied by external things that are very hard and very painful. Could be illness, could be embarrassment, could be betrayal, uh, could be financial setbacks, uh, could be, uh, you know, any kind of thing that happens that's very painful, along with the the, the, the emptiness inside and the, the sense of being cut off from God's presence. So the father tells Catherine, why do I keep this soul surrounded by so many enemies in such pain and distress? Not for her to be captured and lose the wealth of grace, but to show her my providence so she will not trust, she will trust not in herself, but in me. Again, the breaking of pride, that terrible root of pride. Then she will rise up from her carelessness and her concern will make her run for protection to me, her defender, her kind father, the provider of her salvation. I want her to be humble, to see that of herself she is nothing and to recognize that her existence and every gift beyond that comes from me, that I am her life. She will recognize this life in my providence when she is liberated through these struggles. For I do not let these things last forever. They come and go as I see necessary for her. Sometimes she will think she's in hell, and then through no effort of her own, she'll be relieved and will have a taste of eternal life. The soul is left serene. When she sees, seems to cry out, what she sees seems to cry out that God is all aflame with loving fire as she now contemplates my providence. For she sees that she's come safely out of this great flood, not by any effort of her own. The light came unforeseen. It was not her effort, but my immeasurable charity, which wanted to provide for her in time of need, when she can scarcely take any more. Catherine says that, uh, well, you know, they, they all say the same thing. The process of purification is under the loving, wise, powerful providence of God. God never tempts us, allows us to be tested beyond our strength. He always has a plan to bring us out of it, and he has a plan to bring great good out of it. Now, not everything that we experience in this way is actually the purifying dark night. 
Sometimes we can experience this emptiness and dryness. Uh, I mean, going through rough times, and it's not the purifying dark night. John of the Cross says there's three reasons why we may be experiencing this darkness, this pain, this aridity, but only one is, is the actual dark night that's purifying hand of God. So what, what are the reasons why we could be experiencing this darkness or emptiness? First of all, John says our own carelessness, our own infidelity can lead us into a state of spiritual lukewarmness where we lose our taste for God and prayer becomes almost impossible. But it's not a purifying dark night. It's something we bring on ourselves through our lukewarmness, our carelessness, no longer rejecting temptation in the first moment we become aware of it, no longer keeping up our prayer time, no longer associating with other people who can help call us on in our spiritual journey, drifting away from the sacraments, too much media in our life, too much of the world in our life, filling our soul with things which deading our, our desire for God. So what's the solution when the dryness and the darkness is something we brought upon ourselves? Teresa Avila says there's only one solution, repentance. We need to ask God to forgive us for drifting away from those spiritual practices, that seeking of him, that attentiveness to him. And that's the only way that we can grow in the Lord. So she says there's no shortcut. You just have to repent and you have to get back to those spiritual practices. Now, those of us who are used to working out, sometimes we, we can't for a long period of time for whatever reason, and we get back to walking or running or whatever we do, uh, calisthenics, aerobics, I don't, I don't know, whatever. It's harder. It's harder to get back into physical shape, and it's harder to get back into spiritual shape. So don't get out of spiritual shape. Don't drift away into lukewarmness. Don't abandon your spiritual practices. Don't abandon that vigilance over your mind and heart and soul that's required for keeping attentiveness to God. The second reason John of the Cross says we may be experiencing this darkness or emptiness or aridity is because of physical or emotional illness. What he says is try to get better. St. Francis de Sales is really good in this. He says, go to the doctor, do what the doctor tells you to do. In the meantime, don't waste your suffering. Teresa of Avila says, adjust your schedule if you have to. If, if praying in the morning no longer works because of something going on in your life, find some other time. Uh, if you can't get the Mass every day like you used to, uh, get that little Magnificat book and, and do the readings of the Mass even though you can't get there. Uh, adjust uh, in, in a way that your illness or your uh, difficulties uh, require it. Uh, when, when my mom... Would, would, kids would say, gee, I'm bored, you know, I feel just bored. My mom would say, do something good for somebody else. Get out of yourself. And that's what Teresa of Avila says, too. She sounds like my mom. She says, do something, do a work of charity, do something good for somebody else. So the third reason why somebody may experience this dryness or aridity is this purifying dark night that we've been talking about. Now, the thing about the purifying dark night is that you can't hurry love. It makes me think about the Motown song, You Can't Hurry Love, You Just Have to Wait. And, and John of the Cross says, even if your spiritual director tells you that what you're going through is a dark night, it's not going to help you. It's still going to feel painful. It's still going to feel difficult. Uh, and and the, only, the only time it's going to go away when the Lord just decides that it should go away and that you've come through a purification, you're in a different place in your spiritual life, 
and he'll give you a time of of refreshing. Uh, but the, the whole thing is under the control of God. So what do you do in a dark night? You keep on believing. You keep on hoping. You keep on loving. Because the dark night is intended to deepen faith, to deepen hope, and deepen love. What's faith? Faith is believing without seeing. Now, sometimes we see so many signs of God's favor that it's easy to believe, but the Lord wants to bring us to a deeper place of faith where we believe without seeing, where we don't see those positive signs that we see. We don't see the answered prayer that we used to see. We don't see the fruit that we used to see. We don't see the appreciation we used to see. We don't see the rewards that we used to see. It becomes an opportunity to believe without seeing, to go deeper in faith. Same with hope. When we see so many signs of God's favor, uh, it's easy to hope. But when things aren't looking good, when we don't see the positive signs, when we don't know how good is ever going to come out of a difficult situation, that's a time where hope can be purified and we can hope against hope. We can hope purely on the basis of God's word and not on anything we're seeing or feeling. Same with love. It's so much easier to love God when we experience his love for us. It's so much easier to love other people when they love us back. But Jesus says, you know, even the pagans do that. So the Lord wants to bring us into a deeper love, a supernatural love. where We're able to love not only the people that love us, but people who don't love us, who don't appreciate what we're doing for them, that, that even our enemies that, that even betray us, uh, even persecute us. So the Lord wants to bring us to that deeper place of love where we can pray for those who persecute us and love our enemies. And he does that through these dark nights. So what do you do in a dark night? You just keep on keeping on. You just keep faithful to your spiritual practices, your spiritual reading. You just keep on keeping on, and the day is going to come when the Lord brings you out of it. And uh, the fruit on the other side is really amazing. Um we don't have time to do chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, but uh, peek in those chapters and see what comes from the purification. Desire that God purify you to the max so that you can be maximally united with him and maximally fruitful in your, in your time on earth. I'm, I'm sorry that we've kind of run out of time here. There's more I wanted to say, but... Um, Hey, this was chapter 14. This is deeper purification. We need to have a picture of the kind of whole journey, uh, the, pur the purgative way, the illuminative way, the, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. And towards the end of the illuminative way comes this deeper purification. So uh, thank God that he, he wants to make us whole, that he wants to make us holy, and that only he can do it, and he will if we cooperate. Okay. Um, Please go to our website and sign up for our newsletter so we can keep in touch with you and go to our YouTube channel and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And every time we, Peter or I or anybody else does a new video, you'll get a little notice of it. Um, and then I want to tell you about how you can get St. Francis used words. You can go to our website and store, and this is the code to get the free booklet you put in. When you're checking out, normally it's $2, but when you're checking out, if you put in the discount code STFLENT, S-T-F-L-E-N-T, uh, you'll get this for free. And this will kind of give you a little taste of Franciscan spirituality, which is just as challenging, just as wonderful, just as good as 
the doctrines of the church, but Francis is not a doctor of the church. I'd also like to remind you of this book, A Church in Crises, Pathways Forward. Uh, we've been talking about the interior struggle and the interior journey, uh, these Lenten talks and Advent talks. This book talks about what's going on out there in the church and the world, which is very much related to the spiritual journey. So I would recommend this as a complement to the fulfillment of all desire. Now, I want to tell you about our next mission. It's going to be a Pentecost mission. It's going to start on Pentecost Sunday, May 23rd, and run for four Sundays in a row. I'm going to give the first talk. Pete Borak, who works with us here at Renewal Ministries and our young adult ministry, is going to give the second talk. Peter Herbeck is going to give the third talk. And Dr. Mary Healy, my colleague at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, is going to give the fourth talk. And we're going to celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. The title of the, the, the Pentecost mission is Receive the Holy Spirit. And we want every week to welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives and the lives of all those who are joining with us. So be free again. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, seeing you at the Pentecost mission beginning on Pentecost Sunday, May 23rd. But in the meantime, almost every week now, Peter and I are doing new videos for our YouTube channel, and we'll see you there. Elizabeth, are there any immediate questions? There are a few questions. All right. Here's a good one. Will there be different levels of union with God in heaven? Uh, I don't really know, but I suspect so. Most uh, most people who think about these things, like Thomas Aquinas and other people, think that it's all very individualized. You know, each of us are made differently. We're made for reflecting different aspects of God's own being. We're made for different levels of union, I suppose. You know, like when when the uh, James and John wanted to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus, Jesus said, uh, "Can you drink the cup?" And they said, "Oh yeah, we could drink the cup." You know, you sure. Well, they ran away at the crucifixion, but later on in their life, after Pentecost, they had a chance to drink their cup. But uh, obviously, there's some places in heaven that God the Father has reserved for certain people. But the great thing about heaven is there will be no envy, there will be no jealousy. We'll be so grateful for the place we have. We'll be so grateful for our mansion that we won't envy anybody's other's mansion, even though it's bigger and better. We will be so purified that we absolutely will delight in the variety and diversity in heaven, and we'll absolutely feel so good and so right about God's goodness to us and giving us our place and our union with him. How does one know the difference between a dark night and depression? That takes discernment. How does someone know the difference between a dark night and depression? That takes some discernment. Uh, there's various signs that John gives about when it's a spiritual dark night, uh, and I, 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 they're, they're in the book. I can't get into it right now. But he basically says, if your hunger for God is still very strong, if the agony of not feeling his presence is very strong, if you still desire more than anything to be one with him, even though you're experiencing this darkness and pain, it's a spiritual dark night. Uh, this is where a wise spiritual director uh, can can help discern What's a spiritual action of God in your soul and what may be something that counseling or medication could help? And it isn't like the Lord cannot use natural depression. 
I mean, that can be part of the pain and, and suffering that can draw us into deeper union with the Lord if we integrate it in the right way and respond to it in the right way. But we should definitely seek, if we have some question about that, we should definitely seek a wise counselor, a, a spiritual director. How do we resolve Jesus wanting to enter into a personal friendship with us while at the same time worshiping the Lord with all due reverence, holiness, and fear of the Lord? It just works. The question is, how do we, how do we correlate Jesus wanting to be in a personal, intimate, spiritual friendship with us and maintaining a reverence and awe for his holiness and the fact that he's God? Uh, all I can say is it just works. You know, like 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 I said about Teresa Babel, sometimes she referred to him as her spouse, where the emphasis was on the intimacy and the friendship. Sometimes she referred to him as his majesty, where the emphasis was on reverence and awe. And they, they're, they're both really important dimensions of our relationship with the Lord. They're not contradictory to each other. They should live in both in, in us. In this, in, both should live us. Both should be present in us. Being fallen and weak creatures that we are, why does a loving God keep sending us as sheep among wolves, exposing us to the principalities that are set on killing our souls? Why can't it be a little easier for us? The question was, why is the Lord sending us like sheep amongst wolves uh, with the principalities and powers, you know, who are behind a lot of the difficulties right now in the church and the world? Why does the Lord make it a little easy for us? Because he thinks this is the best way. I mean, you know, it's it's a very high honor to be invited to participate in Jesus's own struggle with the powers and principalities, Jesus's own struggle with uh betrayal and, and difficulty and pain and suffering. And uh, he doesn't want us to be dummies. He doesn't want us to be robots. He wants us to participate with him in the spiritual battle because he wants to raise us to a very, very high dignity. And, uh, you know, this is a mystery too, but oftentimes it says in scripture, those who are worthy to be his disciple. You know, he says, unless you renounce all that you have, you're not worthy to be my disciple. So, Heaven isn't cheap. The gift of heaven is so great. Uh, Jesus paid such a great price so that we can go there. But he says the, the servant is not above his master. We need to participate ourselves in that grain falling into the ground and dying so it may bear fruit and the death to the disordered things in our life. And, uh, and the, the amazing thing, though, is that Jesus not only has done it himself, but he's going to do it with us. He's going to lead us through it. He's going to be present with us. He's not going to abandon us. He's going to help us in our weakness. And all we have to do is say, Lord, help. He's going to help us. Uh, he knows we're sheep amongst wolves, and he thinks that that's how it has to be in a fallen world. He's calling people out of the world. That's why he said in the Last Supper, he says, you're no longer belong to the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. Jesus is calling us out of the, the disordered world uh, into a, a permanent union with him and a, a communion of saints in the church. And uh, it's just how things have to be because of original sin. It's just how things have to be because of the reality of sin and the devil. They have to be conquered, and he wants us to participate in their conquering. He wants to give us that incredible dignity. Okay. Thank you for being with us these last four weeks, and I hope you continue the journey with us in our 
newsletter with the choices we face with uh, our Catholic radio programs by Peter Herbeck and Sister Ann Shields and all the other things that we do, our young adult ministry. So uh, God loves you, and so do we. This podcast is brought to you by Renewal Ministries, part of the Renewal Podcast Network. For more information about Renewal Ministries, visit our website at renewalministries.net. Join us next week to find strength, hope, and courage for the Christian journey. Until next time, this is Right Now with Ralph Martin.